Hey there, it's Christine, and I am just coming back from vacation. And I just want to speak to that really quickly for a moment because, you know, every time I go on vacation, um, it reminds me how important it is. And not just vacation. Hey, I'm going to take my computer with me. I'm going to be, you know, on social media the whole time, but a true vacation. I was off of social media. I really was disconnected from my work. And I just want to make a note of that. I love my work. I love what I do supporting my clients and you all. And despite all of that truth, I need times away from it. I need to be able to disconnect because it can be heavy and intense sometimes, right? And even if it wasn't, we need rest and relaxation in order for our hormones to thrive. There's just no way around it. So it doesn't matter how much you love your family. It doesn't matter how much you love your career. It doesn't matter how much you love your volunteer work. If you're doing that all of the time, you are in this go, go, go mode. And that is not conducive to healthy hormones. We need our rest and relaxation and we need it on a consistent basis. We really do need it daily, but I see how these good, you know, solid chunks of time away make such a difference in mental health and physical health. So I implore you the next time you do take a vacation, take a break from social media, take a break from sort of what you do in your everyday life to give your body a real sense of downtime and unwinding because otherwise you're not really sort of filling back up your glass, right? You're just continuing to kind of give from that glass, um, even though it may be a little bit more fun in the process. So anyways, that's my note on vacation, but I am back and wanted to remind you that next Wednesday is my workshop called Bringing Sexy Back. We're going to talk all about getting your libido going again. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, go ahead and grab that spot. If you go to my website or the link in the notes, um, if you go to my website, you'll see uh, near the top of the page, latest workshop, Bringing Sexy Back, you can click there, um, or you can go to the show notes today and sign up there. It's going to be fantastic. Super excited to share all kinds of really good cutting edge info with you. And then also as a reminder, I have a new quiz on my website called What's Your Hormone Issue? It's a two minute quiz. You're going to find out what's going on for you. So I highly recommend going and taking that if you haven't already. Um, Okay. So speaking of calming down, taking care of yourself, really unwinding. Today's episode is a fantastic one with definitely one of uh, the professionals, the doctors in the field that I really look up to, Dr. Isabella Wentz. I'm so excited to have her on the show, to talk with her. She really, um, you know, is such a, a leader in terms of you know, being this pharmacist that ended up having Hashimoto's and going a functional or alternative route in dealing with Hashimoto's. And then her latest book is all about adrenals. And if you've listened to the show at all, you know how important adrenal function is and how that connects to your thyroid and how that connects to your sex hormones. Three-legged stool, y'all, just a reminder of your endocrine system. It's your thyroid, your adrenals, and your ovaries. So we got to take care of them all together. You're going to learn lots about how to do that today and definitely check out her new book, um, which I believe is out now. So um, buckle in. Here we go. Hey there, and welcome to Hormonally Speaking. I'm your host, Christine Garvin, a functional health coach. 
Each week, I speak with an incredible guest expert on all things women's hormones. We're here to empower you to take back control of your body, health, and well-being, and to learn about the latest in research and solutions when it comes to getting your hormones happy. No part of this podcast should be construed as medical advice, and we always recommend working with a professional practitioner to figure out what's best for your body. Now let's dive in with today's guest. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Speaking. This week we are talking about really two of my favorite things because they are essentially the underlying components of our hormonal system. When we think about, you know, hormones and everybody wants to jump into the sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone, but really we can't get there and really help those hormones unless we really support our adrenals and our thyroid. So we are going to be talking about both of those today with Dr. Isabella Wentz, who is a compassionate, innovative, solution-focused integrative pharmacist dedicated to finding the root causes of chronic health conditions. Her passion stems from her own diagnosis with Hashimoto's thyroiditis in 2009, following a decade of debilitating symptoms. As an accomplished author, Dr. Wentz has written several best-selling books, including the New York Times bestseller, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause, the protocol-based number one New York Times bestseller, Hashimoto's Protocol, a 90-day plan for reversing thyroid symptoms and getting your life back, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology, Nutrition Protocols and Healing Recipes to take charge of your thyroid health. Her latest book, Adrenal Transformation Protocol, is set to be released on April 18th, 2023. The book focuses on resetting the body's stress response through targeted safety signals and features a four-week program that has already helped over 3,500 individuals. The program has an impressive success rate with over 80% of participants improving their brain fog, fatigue, anxiety, irritability, sleep issues, and libido. Welcome, Dr. Wentz. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to talk, I mean, about everything, but your new book and this focus on adrenal health, because um, I know it's being talked about more now, but I think a lot of people still don't quite understand exactly what the adrenals do and how they impact our sex hormones and also how to really make themselves better from, we don't call it adrenal fatigue anymore, but maybe adrenal dysregulation um, other than maybe, you know, taking some adaptogenic herbs. So let's just start with some basics, like what the adrenals do in the body and then go from there. Sure. That's a great question. The adrenal glands, we don't hear about them too often, do we? But they're actually critical to, and the hormones they produce are actually critical to our survival. So adrenal glands produce a whole host of stress hormones. The most widely known about one is cortisol. People typically think cortisol, you hear it and it's like, isn't that the hormone that like makes you store fat. And yes, that, that's part of the situation, but it's also an incredibly helpful anti-inflammatory hormone. And it gets released in times when we experience stress. So if you're being chased by a bear, you want cortisol on your side, right? So the adrenal glands help us release this beautiful cortisol and it helps us um, survive, right? So it helps us have a little bit more energy, a little bit more oomph in our step. And so we can get away from that bear very, very quickly. And then under 
you know, optimal situations, we're supposed to reset and then get back to normal levels of cortisol secretion. Cortisol also plays an important role throughout our day-to-day -day health. In the morning, we release a little bit of cortisol that kind of gets us going in the morning. And then throughout the day, we drop our levels of cortisol gradually in, in healthy circumstances when we're feeling our best to the point where we have very little cortisol throughout the day, uh, at the end of the day. So we can produce more melatonin and get to sleep. And then cortisol is kind of there for us when we're under stress, we're feeling some deadlines, we need to get through something and gives us a little bit of spike, a little bit of that extra energy. You know, you're maybe at a dog park and you see like a big dog charging on your little dog and you intervene and, and, you know, you, you have superpowers all of a sudden you're like really sharp, you're on it. You, you grab the big dog away and, and that's cortisol helping you survive. Now, where it gets tricky and where we start thinking about adrenal dysfunction is where that cortisol release gets dysregulated, where we produce too much of it all day, we don't produce enough of it in the morning, or we produce too much at night, or we have these um, cortisol roller coasters throughout the day. And that, that's known as adrenal dysfunction, and that results from being under chronic stress for, for prolonged time. And, you know, I know some of, so many of the clients that come to me, that is what you just said is exactly what's going on for them is that their cortisol is too low in the morning. So they may struggle to get out of bed, get moving. And then of course it's too high at night, which means it's hard for them to either. I, it's interesting because sometimes it, that cortisol will be high. Say, you know, if we do a Dutch test and we can see it'll be high at night and, and they're still able to go to sleep, but then they wake up. You know, usually mm -hmm. that two to three a.m. Uh, time of the morning, and so this is where I'm always like, okay, it comes back again and again to your circadian rhythm, right? To be able to really just kind of reset and rebalance and flip the script on what's currently going on. So, what are some of the best ways for people to really get their circadian rhythm back in balance? There's a few things that I recommend doing with my clients. And one of them is very, very simple, but it's just stepping outside first thing in the morning. So having a little bit of sunshine in, in your eyes and your retinas, that's going to let your body know that it's not time to produce melatonin. And it's going to help your body produce more of that cortisol. Another thing that I might recommend um, for people who have trouble waking up in the morning and struggle with morning fatigue is getting a, a something I like to call the adrenal kickstart. And this is going to be a little drink that people can make very quickly in their kitchen, half, half a cup of orange juice to boost our glucose levels. Mm -hmm. Glucose and cortisol are oftentimes connected. So when one low, one's low, the other one's going to be low. Mm -hmm. And mix that up with a little bit of protein powder, perhaps some coconut milk and electrolytes. And that's going to support having healthy cortisol, healthy blood pressure, healthy blood sugar levels early in the morning to give you a little a bit of a morning kickstart. And then waiting a little bit, if you're somebody that is dependent on caffeine and many people with adrenal dysfunction, um, some, some doctors might say like, oh, you have this problem because you drink too much caffeine. What I've actually found, it's like people self-medicate with caffeine, yeah. but yep. putting it a little bit early, or a little bit later, that's going to allow your body to produce its cortisol naturally. Cause if, mm. if you're drinking a cup of coffee, as soon as you wake up, you know, you're, you're still kind of in bed and you're having that coffee, like while you're still in bed, then your body's not going to be able to like produce its own cortisol. Cause 
cortisol and the brain and our adrenals, it's, it's a beautiful feedback loop. And, and caffeine gives us a bit of cortisol. And then our brain's going to say, Hey, we don't need to produce cortisol in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like she's mm-hmm. got it. She's given us some cortisol right there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I feel like this is something that's just starting to be talked about a little bit more recently, what you're talking about, you know, giving it an hour and a half to two hours before you bring in the caffeine, because how does that cortisol rise in the morning? Cause it's not, um, it's not at its highest peak right away, right? It takes a little while to get there. Yes, absolutely. So it, it depends on the person and there's people that might have like a delayed, um, delayed rise in cortisol, mm. but it typically starts to rise up in the early, the, the wee morning hours. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we, to wake up and for most people naturally should be between 7 and perhaps 9 a.m where they feel energetic and, and they have that 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 great feeling when they wake up and they feel alive and amazing and ready to take on the day um people with you know the delayed cortisol patterns they might actually start that off later on and they'll wake up at 9 or 10 and then they wake up confused not knowing mm. where they are, who mm-hmm. they are, what's going on. And so, um, so p- part of, part of my work and really important key to healing and setting ourselves up for success is making sure that we're aligned with the daylight, right? So you mm-hmm. have good energy throughout the day, and then you should be tired at night. So you could get your restful and regenerative sleep for your brain and for your body. Absolutely. And it's, it's so simple, yet so hard to, to do for some of us, right? So it, that, I'm so glad that you talked about that drink first thing in the morning, because I do think a lot of people need something, right? That they, you know, depending, even if they wake up on the earlier end, that they still feel that like sluggishness. And so to have this sort of supportive to your adrenals drink first thing, right? And then Obviously, we probably want to get some good protein in at breakfast in order to help, you know, stabilize your blood sugar and your cortisol. What happens when people really start to see that sort of downward, you know, slope, maybe too much in the afternoon? What's going on with that? Right. So some people might get on what I call a um, a roller coaster, like a cortisol roller coaster, where perhaps um, you know, ideally we want high cortisol in the mornings and just like a gradual slope. So think of going down like a slide, right? And it's it doesn't have too many bumps. But if we have too many bumps, it might feel like um it might feel like irritability, it might feel like the 3 p.m. slump, mm-hmm. it might feel like, oh my gosh, it's like 3 p.m. My brain is just not working. You might find that you uh tend to be just very short-tempered. And that's, that's, that's actually a really good sign that you might need just a little bit of protein at that time. Mm. I, um, I do recommend for people, you know, we, we eat like usually we'll have lunch and then we have wait until dinner and it's right around six o'clock. But if you have that 3 PM slump doing something like a 2 PM, 2 30, maybe, uh, maybe just having a, a little snack with protein. And you can, you can even do like a protein shake if, if you don't have enough time and just do a little bit of a protein powder, perhaps some coconut milk or avocado, something where it gives you just a little bit of an ability to carry over and not get into that, um, that cortisol slump, blood sugar slump. And it, it just, it can be a really big game changer for people just adding a little bit of a snack that's healthy and pr- that has healthy amounts of protein and fat. Absolutely. So on the subject of protein, 
everybody has their take these days around, you know, how much protein we should be getting in. What do you recommend in a day for most people in terms of grams of protein? Well, that's a really good question. And of course, there's issues like people with kidney disease that have to um, have to mind their protein intake. Mm -hmm. Uh, But generally, I do recommend that people follow a more aggressive uh, protein intake when um, when they are a bit older or Mm -hmm. when they have chronic health conditions. So, you know, what the recommendations are for um, one gram of protein per kilogram to one gram of protein per pound a day. And I would say for most people somewhere in between that is going to be about right. And I have a, I have a little section in my book that, that goes over, like, if you're a bodybuilder, you probably Mm -hmm. want a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And if you are like a couch potato, you know, (laughs) you need a little bit less, but generally somewhere right around that. I kind of give people some guidelines to get to know their bodies and to feel into what, what feels best for them. And of course, there's always medical conditions that might require less or more. Absolutely. And I think that's an important note that you just made that, you know, a lot of times out there right now, you'll just see, okay, you know, this is how much protein you should eat that, you know, and just like anything, the, how much movement we have going on in our lives, how much, um, you know, we have to be sitting in a desk at work. All of these things are part of the situation of what is going to really be best for your body. And so that just, you know, one to one thing isn't going to work for everybody. Right. And and also it's like recognizing and really paying attention to your body. Right. I I find so often with my clients when they do start to consume more protein then they notice less of the sort of ups and downs from that blood sugar regulation. But then in some cases, you know, the protein maybe makes them feel too sluggish if they're getting too much. And, and that's why it comes back to bioindividuality, right? Again and again. And so that's awesome that you have in your book, some guide guidelines around that to help people kind of figure out what's going on for them and what's best for them. Absolutely. And I will say, like, I would say most people probably are not getting enough protein. hundred percent. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, Pretty, the biggest thing when clients come to me for sure is they think that they're getting a lot more protein than they actually are. And so I always recommend, and this is people can do this on their own, just do a three day diet log. You know, it's not about counting calories or anything. It's really just seeing what your macros are breaking down to, particularly that protein, because most people are getting less protein than they think they are and getting uh, less carbs than they think they are. <laughs> you know, excuse me, less protein. Um, they're, they're eating less protein than they should be and getting much more carbs than they <laughs> necessarily should be, you know? So it's just such a helpful tool to really see what's going on um, in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And what people don't realize, and I didn't realize until I started really researching health and healing mm-hmm. is that people with chronic health conditions and chronic illness and older people actually tend to need more protein, mm-hmm, right? And so mm-hmm. really help their bodies build themselves back up because we know that protein gets broken down into amino acids and the amino acids are what help us repair and rebuild our body. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And as we get, you know, further along in perimenopause and menopause, you know, particularly in menopause when our estrogen drops and so our insulin becomes a little bit more rocky, it is so helpful to get that protein in to really help the blood sugar stabilization, you know? And, and so um, I, I see sometimes women going into menopause and kind of going the other way, going, you know, uh, maybe 
pulling back on their protein, going more just plant-based. And, you know, I just kind of implore them to continue to get enough protein, whatever way that they're getting protein in, you know, to make sure that that's going to help them for the long term with their bone health and, and lots of other things too. And I think that's such an important point. And women, I know we get so many messages about all of these different hacks out there, like mm-hmm. intermittent fasting mm-hmm. and breakfast, and that can work really well for some people, but not for others. Like if, if breakfast was like a big source of protein for you and you're finding that like going intermittent fasting or skipping breakfast, you end up having night wakings or not mm-hmm. having enough energy throughout the day, that could be a sign that something is out of line with your body. So you always, when, one of my biggest hopes is to teach people how to listen to the signals mm-hmm. that they're send them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, well, maybe we need a little bit more of this. And how do, how do I tune in? How do I dial in and give my body what it needs? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to nighttime or getting into the evening, what do you recommend in terms of people sort of starting to dial down so that their cortisol continues to go down and that melatonin starts to rise? A few, a few things. One of the things that I might recommend and for people, most people I'll say like maybe lower carbs in the morning, but if you're somebody that finds carbohydrates are a little bit you don't have enough carbohydrates. Sometimes some people might have trouble falling asleep Mm. or they might wake up throughout the night. So maybe doing a little bit more carbs, heavier um, carbs in the evening, that might be a consideration for some people. Mm -hmm. Other things I might recommend would be wind down drinks. So perhaps doing like a chamomile tea can be incredibly helpful. Um, Some, some more um, intensive things would be cutting out caffeine and intake before 3 p.m. for most people. I know if I if I have caffeine after 4 p.m., it's like, woohoo, I'm ready to party. It's like 11 o'clock and, I, and you know, I'm lying in bed wide awake. Yeah. Um, having, limiting your exposure to blue lights and bright lights. I know that's hard for people because mm-hmm. there's like fun movies to watch and mm-hmm. uh, fun things to do in the evenings, right? And a lot, mm-hmm. of, time, a lot of us have our relaxing time, our downtime, our our neighbors on our street know us as like the red light house. So what we <laughs> actually do is we have these lights that turn red when the cool. sun goes down to, to kind of set the circadian rhythm for, um, for ourselves to let our body know, let our bodies know that it's time to wind down, but people can do that with, um, blue blocking lights and there's mm-hmm. different settings on phones and TVs, um, eating with, you know, dinner with candlelight. Mm-hmm. And then I like that. Um, so many different ways to do it. And then one of my, my all-time favorites, like non-negotiable is to take like an Epsom salt bath in the evening. And so having that hot water with the magnesium rich Epsom salts, Mm -hmm. salts is going to put your body in a very relaxing state. Mm -hmm. Then having a little bit of time to cool off right after, you know, you get out of the hot the hot bath, and then you get out into the cold, that actually sends our body a signal to relax and sleep more and getting into a really fabulous sleep environment. So that might be, you know, making sure your bedroom is, is, you know, clear of clutter if possible. It's not always possible, but having, um, having a perfectly dark and cool bedroom where I will go around and I'll cover up like little blue lights in the, mm. in the bedroom that makes a big difference for waking up throughout the night and I'll try to set the temperature for most people, 65 to 70 degrees is going to be a comfortable temperature. If it's too warm, we're going to have trouble falling asleep. Mm-hmm. We're going to have trouble 
Um, we might have nightmares throughout the night. And that is going to be something that when I think about how our genes evolved, it's like we were in our caves, right? As right. cavemen, women, and it was yeah. like dark and cool yeah. in there. So trying to set up a cave-like setting. So this is kind of kind of the lifestyle factors. And I also have a lot of things and recommendations that I focus on to help people sleep. So sleep like blood sugar balance helps with that. Magnesium supplements, um, myo inositol is really helpful for promoting sleep and blood sugar balance. And we, you know, I go from like very foundational things mm-hmm. to like, if you're really having trouble, here's some potential causes and let's figure yeah. out what is causing your your sleep issues, right? Yeah, that's so important because first of all, most of us aren't completely dialed in on the foundations, right? And we may need to relook at the foundations as you mentioned. And, you know, I, like one of my clients realized for her, one of the biggest things was unplugging her Wi-Fi at night. Like that made a huge difference in her sleep, you know? And, and so sometimes I think, you know, people understand, okay, I'm not supposed to have my technology in my room or be using it before bed, but they don't necessarily think about even the Wi-Fi can be impacting their sleep, you know? So there's, there's these little things that you have to kind of, like you said, we didn't evolve to have as part of our nightly ritual at all, right? It wasn't part of um, what, what our bodies were used to. And so it can absolutely get in the way. And then there's also, definitely clients that have come to me, I'd say sleep is the biggest issue probably. Right. And they say, okay, I do this, 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 like all the recommendations that I give them. They're like, yeah, I do all that stuff. And I'm like, okay. And then it's like, okay, well, we get, we got to go to that next level of certain supplements and things like that. And then obviously for women that are in there, you know, early to mid forties and on, um, sometimes it may just come down to, you need some progesterone. <laughs> yep. Yep. Progesterone. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, um, I, when I was in my twenties and thirties, right. I used to think like, oh my goodness. Yes. Like people can't sleep. They just need to sleep. Like it's, it was very, very, um, straightforward. You, you just need to drink less caffeine, sleep in a dark room. But then the more you work with clients and the more you get to know the the unique aspects of what might be going on within their bodies, the more, the more tools you end up having and being able to help more people. I used to have like a, maybe a 50% success rate for helping people sleep. And now it's Mm -hmm. closer to like 80, 90% just because of um, my clients and Mm -hmm. my my husband. And I had a young son with with like that didn't sleep. So I had to do like, like, I'm going to figure this out. (laughs) Yeah. Like I need to figure this out. Like this needs to happen. Right. Yeah. No doubt. So what do you think the biggest issue that you see is when people wake up at that 3 a.m., you know, 3 to 4 a.m. and and often struggle to get back to sleep, let's put it that way? I think blood sugar in my experience. And so one of the one of the things that people can one of the things that happens when you wake up at that time, you could be becoming hypoglycemic. And your body does you a favor by trying to compensate mm-hmm. to give you more blood glucose. And by to do that, it needs to release some cortisol. And cortisol is like your wake up hormone. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> and you're like, why do I feel hungry? It's like 3 a.m. And mm-hmm. why can't I go back to sleep? And you feel wired. And you know, it's like you're tired, but you're wired. And so in that acute moment, I usually recommend for people to like, 
eat a banana to help them go back to sleep, maybe take some GABA or glycine if they mm-hmm. have that on hand to help them fall back, back asleep. Mm-hmm. And thinking about what, um, how to set up your next day so it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like, make sure you have enough protein at breakfast. It could go back as far as like, you didn't get enough protein throughout the day. You didn't eat enough calories throughout the day. Um, maybe you had too many carbs. Did you happen to drink a bottle of wine? Right. Definitely. <laughs> Was that there? whole vault? <laughs> um, that, that might've been the issue. Yeah. And so figuring out what you, how to set up your daily routine. So that doesn't happen yeah. for, for much of what I recommend. And I typically take people on a four week journey where we do some foundational things. It's going to mm-hmm. be things like myo-inositol, eating blood sugar balance, making sure you're eating enough protein and fat throughout the day. Mm-hmm. All of these things work really, really well. And really beautifully for, for some people, it might be going deeper, like, Hey, you know, sometimes chromium deficiency can cause mm. you to wake up in the middle of the night. If you don't eat enough calories and this can be tough for people trying to lose weight. Right. Cause they're yeah. like, Oh, I need to, I need to cut back. Um, there might be other things like ammonia toxicity within your body. So there might be things like sarcomyces boulardii or ornithine or figuring out which gut infections you have that are causing right. you to wake up throughout the night or, um, yeast overgrowth, mold toxicity, these things can really mess with your blood sugar. So there's, um, and, and I try to get, you know, I try to focus on just like foundationals over the core four weeks with my um, people in the program. And mm-hmm. then once they complete that, I have um, a whole section in the book that talks about how to tailor the protocol. And so, yes, if you have, if you have perimenopause and menopause and you're like, can't sleep. I don't have a libido. Everybody is kind of, you know, annoying me. Then it's like, oh my goodness, there's this, there's little tiny hormone you may want to look into and progesterone and that can be life-changing during our lives. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about, as you mentioned, the banana too, you know, another thing that just from personal experience. um, So I had a surgery that went wrong and then I had multiple surgeries after that. Right. So I had a fibroid removed they unknowingly burned me in three places in my intestines oh, during the, the fibroid surgery. So um, I ended up having sepsis and a, um, a temporary ostomy for about six and a half months. And so, of course, while I was in the hospital for about three weeks, sleep was like not nothing pretty much for those three weeks. I could not sleep. And then, you know, I'm an ostomy bag. So I was having to wake up at night anyway um, and go to the bathroom and dump the bag, but also eat because food would just go right through me. Right. And then it took, I mean, once I had the reversal, it probably took a year for my body to re-regulate. And one of the things I really realized was how much PTSD impacts sleep too. Right. And I had gotten in this, um, I think my body was just almost in that protection mode, right? And this is where the cortisol was probably too high for me too much of the time, right? Because it was like in this, like, we want to protect you from anything like this happening again. So you need to be awake and aware, you know, but the banana was like my savior. (laughs) I remember that at like three or four in the morning when I would wake up and I'd just be like, okay, I'm not going back to sleep at all. You know, Um, the banana was like my jam, you know? And, And like you said too, it's so interesting because I really did figure out for me that um, you know, not having as high a protein meal at night and having a higher carb meal at night and getting the majority of my protein earlier in the day was so much more helpful for my body, you know, and that certainly, um, at this point I'm able to go my 12 hours without eating, but for a long time I couldn't. 
and that's okay, right? So if people need to eat something, you know, it, it A, is not going to necessarily be like that forever. And it doesn't have to be an entire meal. It's just like a little snack that can be supportive. Yeah. And, and I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I'm so, so sorry that you went through that, but I feel like women, a lot of times they hear like they need to do this, like they need to fast or they need to um, do this kind of exercise. And it, and I'm all about like, let's figure out where you are right now. And mm-hmm. what are the things that we can do that feel the most nourishing, supportive to your body and that the things that are going to put your body in a safety zone, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of us get like danger signals from, you know, traumatic stress and having inflammation in the body, having surgery, having mm-hmm. sleep deprivation, all these are stressors on the body. And so what messages can we send to your body to make it feel safe? And part of that is nourishment, right? And so mm-hmm. if you were, um, if you were in a famine, yeah. that's going to be, um, you know, you can't, you're hungry, but you can't eat. Yeah. And so when you're hungry and you're not eating, whether that's at 3 a.m. or early in the morning, people are trying to diet, that's sending your body a sign that you're in a famine, right? And so initially, a lot of times I will recommend, you know, eat more food, eat more frequently for a lot of women than they're used to doing yeah. and end up being like, oh my gosh, I actually lost weight, right? Sometimes I'll say like, maybe you should do less cardio, right? And they're like, no, 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 I'm like trying to lose weight. And they're yeah. like, oh, now my body feels safe and it doesn't feel like it's in a famine and my metabolism actually um, sped up instead, instead of being slowed down, right? Because yep. stress puts our metabol- slows down our metabolism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, all of that is so important. And particularly, I do think so many women have some, you know, history of disordered eating because it's hard to be in our culture and not have some level of that at some point, right? And that includes often not having any as many calories as we actually need. And so to, you know, re-regulate the body and make it feel safe, it's like it has to have enough calories to feel safe, especially as, as a woman's body. Because I was watching um the show called Limitless. It's like Chris Hemsworth. Um, it's on Disney Plus, and it's all about him doing these like extreme things, but for like not just anti aging, but to live longer, right? And one of the episodes was about fasting, and I was just watching it, and it's amazing, right? But I was thinking, this does not work for women's bodies, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they put these things out there, and it's the studies are done on men. The, the, you know, trials are done on men. They're showing us a man doing this. And it's just a completely different story. You know, a woman's body is going to act, react very differently. And that's not every single woman's bodies because, of course, we're individuals too. But in general, while we are cycling people, yes. it's going to be very different, right? And so when you're in menopause, it's also a different story than when you're cycling. So, you know, you have to be open to those changes that happen over time too. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting because like you said, a lot of the studies are designed for men and then men typically have more muscle mass and mm-hmm. lower body fat. And many times they're taller and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and heavier than us. And mm-hmm. not to mention like the minor detail of having different hormones, right. right. And, and anatomy, like, yeah. like just all of these factors can play in, in a role in how we respond to things. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about a few other things that you recommend in terms of lifestyle factors that you, you know, people may need to shift or change a little bit in order to support their adrenals. 
A lot of it is focused on self-care and finding that time for yourself. And I give women a permission slip or a prescription that says do more of the things that you enjoy. One of the one of the like life-changing things, and it's so simple that I have everybody that goes through my programs, and I talk about this in my book, is I have take a piece of paper and divide it in half on one side, write about what makes me feel better. And on the other side, right. What makes me feel worse. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so like, it's really that simple for a lot of times for people just to develop their own healing protocol. Mm -hmm. And I mean, everybody's a little bit different for a lot of women. I hear, um, sleep deprivation makes me feel worse. So, okay. So get more sleep, right. Yeah. Do a little bit more of that connecting with friends, going for a walk with a friend always makes me feel better. Go for a walk with that friend, you know, Mm -hmm. make your routine. Don't like, don't get so busy with everything else, right? Right. Being overscheduled makes me feel worse. Okay, let's let's think about maybe it won't happen overnight, it won't happen in a week, but let's think about how we can decommit some things. And I, I say, I recommend people create space for healing. Mm. And I talk about various strategies of things that we can do to perhaps um, get rid of some of the things that are not necessary or or automate some of the other things that are um, that are automatable, right? Not everything yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but also like just doing pleasurable activities. Whenever we do things that bring us pleasure and that we enjoy and we just do them for the sake of doing them, that is a tremendous safety signal to our bodies. And yes. whether that's like creating art for a lot of people, that is very pleasurable and fun. And unless you're like, you know, a professional art designer. That is not fun anymore. (laughs) I used to write for fun, right? Like I used to write poetry and do short stories. Now I'm a professional writer. (laughs) Like this is not super fun for me when I have tons of deadlines. So just finding an outlet of something that you do just for fun and just for your enjoyment. Yeah. That's such a big difference in, in how we feel and our capability and our ability to heal. Yeah. And I'm so glad that we're finally seemingly getting past that side hustle thing that was so big pre-COVID, right? For women, it was like, oh, get your side hustle on, like take the things that you enjoy and start to make money out of it. And it really does suck the joy out of those things. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever monetize any, you know, things that you're doing, like if that's what the path you want to go on, but having, like you said, something that is just for the simple fact of yourself and your enjoyment and your connection and all of that, that's, it's a completely different impact on the body, right? Than if you have to do it because you have to get it out to the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm not particularly good at art. So that's kind of what I do. Cause I know mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to be able to do <laughs> I love like adult coloring books. So oh, I have a, yeah. I have a son that's turning five soon. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we can do together, like Aww, just doing yeah. art with him and we do little, little fun projects and stuff. And, and, you know, I'm never going to sell them or grow, yeah. turn them into a side hustle, like you said, but it, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One thing I was thinking about too, that I wanted to ask your opinion on, you know, um, there is obviously been a thing for a while that has been, um, I don't want to say pushing women to drink more wine, but it's been this like wine o'clock and all these kinds of things. And like, you deserve a glass of wine at the end of the day that we know, unfortunately, that alcohol does impact our sleep and it does impact our blood sugar and, and our adrenals. Um, what do you think about some of these non-alcoholic, um, 
drinks that are coming out now to have those at night instead. Cause I hear a lot of women say, well, I want something to kind of help me with that transitional period, like coming home from work and getting into my evening. I love that idea of having, um, having these and wine, wine tails and just these, uh, virgin cocktails. Mm-hmm. Uh, my team and I have had a whole guide for people going into the holidays about alternative drinks and yeah. I will do things like a reishi or I, I have like a virgin mojito and things like that mm-hmm. to give people something, something to look forward to. Right. Mm-hmm. I think a lot, a lot of times people self-medicate with wine. Yeah. When we think about what wine does, it helps us produce more GABA, right? Mm-hmm. So our GABA is kind of our relaxing unwinding hormone. And I, I actually talk about how, how caffeine and like we have uppers in the morning. So we have our coffee and then we have downers at night. And that's mm-hmm. our, um, that's our wine. And that that's often a way for us to self-medicate yeah. our yep. adrenal dysfunction. And so there's other ways to boost GABA in your body. Like definitely if you're in perimenopause, progesterone will help you do that. You could take mm-hmm. a GABA supplement, but also something simple like magnesium, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a magnesium supplement and having an Epsom salt bath, that's going to help you produce more GABA in your body. Mm-hmm. And I love doing like sparkling, um, sparkling water and putting some flavors in it or electrolytes. Mm-hmm. I actually have a whole section in the book about like evening drinks. Some people nice. have like meal tea or, or I really love the reishi cacao Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drink, that's very relaxing and can help promote GABA and relaxation and good sleep. So there's definitely rituals that you can take on that can feel as good as having a glass of wine without some of the other, um, some of the other not so pleasant side effects. I know, um, I did a, um, continuous glucose monitor at a, a couple of years ago. And I was like, let's see what happens if I drink wine. Yeah. With it. Like I was like self-experimenting. I know. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen if you do rosé all day? And it's like, oh my goodness, my sleep was horrific. Like oh, I, I woke up, I was hypoglycemic and then I was hypoglycemic here. And holy cow, where did that chin hair come from? Right. <laughs> <laughs> all the things. Yeah. So would you see what your blood sugar went to after you like had a glass of wine? Would you check it then? I'm just curious how high it would go. Well, I actually tended to have low blood low, sugar at okay. in the evenings. Gotcha. It still didn't elevate. And I think a lot of people may not realize this, but the blood sugar drops might be the first thing that happens mm. as you're starting to dysregulate your blood sugar. Right. And then eventually the blood sugar swings will follow. So, yes. so that, that is, you know, like an early sign that many people, they don't know why they're waking up at night and they don't know why they're so irritable or mm-hmm. um, tired mm-hmm. or whatnot. And, and sometimes it could be like too many carbohydrates or maybe too much wine in the evenings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely uh, for me in my twenties, I was vegan and I was really bad hypoglycemic. It took me a while to figure that out. Right. But it, it was so interesting, right. Because I was just learning at that time, like you go hypo before you go hyper, essentially, you know, so and that's the thing people are always like, oh, low blood sugar is good. And it's like, no, it's not, you know, I mean, obviously, most people know it's not good to go really low. But um, in general, yeah, if you're hitting low a lot, then eventually it's going to go high. That's what your body's going to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your point, people say like, oh, having low blood sugar is good and having low blood pressure is good. And that, that's like a big point of um, frustration for me Mm because I know I was in my twenties and I had 
low blood pressure, low blood sugar, and kind of the adrenal dysfunction. And Mm -hmm. you would go to the doctor, you're like, I can't get out of bed in the morning. I'm so tired all the time. I'm anxious. You know, I have all these things going on and they're like, your blood sugar is great. (laughs) You're fantastic. It's 65. This is not a problem. You're like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, that that's one of the things that I really want to spread awareness about is like, when you have that low blood sugar, when you have that low blood pressure and you can have low cortisol as well, um, this is a sign of adrenal dysfunction Mm -hmm. and you might actually be in a stage of chronic stress Mm -hmm. and you really need to work on your stress. And I I don't mean just like, you know, meditate, although that's a great way to do it, but looking at your metabolic stress, looking at the, your gut health stress, um, mental stress, your sleep, all of these things that our body can perceive as stressors can impact how our body functions and adapts in the world. Yes, absolutely. And that's so key. And and I'm glad that you brought up, you know, I think I've seen this happen with other women too that are younger um, and have all of those sort of the low end, including low cholesterol too, right? Which I also mm-hmm. dealt with too. And it's this idea, I mean, it's so frustrating in our culture, how what is perceived to be healthy and what is uh, not perceived to be healthy. And if you're, you know, a, a skinny white woman walking into a doctor, they're going to be like, oh, you're fine without looking at anything, <laughs> you know? And, and it's in your head. It's yes. in your head when I had Hashimoto's, but I was thin and I, I was extremely fatigued and I had low cortisol and I had low blood pressure mm-hmm. and I had low blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, we do need to work to get that into the optimal range so we can thrive instead of being in survival mode, right? Absolutely. Well, speaking of Hashimoto's, because you are the Hashimoto's expert, let's talk a little bit about that. What it is for those that don't know, and actually your experience with figuring out that you had it. And I'd love to hear that too. Hashimoto's, it sounds like an exotic condition, right? It sounds like it's super rare, like an exotic Japanese sword fighter. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard all of these different things from people, but it's super common. As many as one in five women might have it at some point in their lifetime. So pregnancy, puberty, perimenopause mm-hmm. are some of the peak times mm-hmm. where um, a person might get a diagnosis. And mm-hmm. what it is, is an autoimmune attack um, against the thyroid gland. In the early stages, people will have quote unquote normal thyroid function. Their thyroid gland will be able to compensate, but they might have symptoms like the anxiety and um, a lot of this adrenal dysfunction that we talked about and the fatigue. They might have fertility issues. They might mm-hmm. have miscarriages. Their children might have um, developmental issues. Um, whole host of various symptoms. Typically, a woman will go in, get her TSH tested in the early stages. Everything looks normal. <laughs> it'll, normal. It'll be like five and they're like, everything looks normal. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, it takes about 10 years to really develop into hypothyroidism or an underactive thyroid. And that's when most women are diagnosed and they're given a prescription like Synthroid levothyroxine to bring up their th- thyroid hormone levels. And it's um, thyroid, man, the, the thyroid <laughs> it does so many things for us, right? right. It, it runs our metabolism. It gives us pretty hair. It makes our brain work. Um, it helps us have um, helps us have shiny hair, non achy joints. Helps us to stay fit, calm. All of these different things mm-hmm. that are just you know critical for us. And so the symptoms are can be all over the place. And lots of times people get misdiagnosed. But we, um, my my passion around that 
started in my twenties when I was just going, had chronic fatigue. I had acid reflux. I had irritable bowel syndrome, carpal tunnel. I was losing my hair, um, was sleeping 12 hours a night, waking up tired. I had cold intolerance. Like I was wearing two jackets in Southern California, right? Like putting on extra weight. Like I was eating the same diet and all of a sudden my sweatpants were like too tight. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are some of the classical symptoms, right? Of hypothyroidism. Yeah. Also anxiety and panic attacks are, are some other um, mm-hmm. not so fun symptoms that people experience. And it took a while to get a diagnosis Finally, when I got a diagnosis, being a pharmacist, I'm like, yes, medications um, <laughs> helped a little bit. And so I'm grateful for that. But they didn't like they didn't help me with like 95 percent of the symptoms. Right. So I still had panic attacks. I still had yeah. the carpal tunnel. I still was losing hair. I still was overweight. Um, all of all of these things were off and the acid reflux and the IBS So I just became a Hashimoto's expert slash human guinea pig to like Mm. heal my own body, reduce the inflammation in my body, reduce the autoimmune attack against my thyroid glands. And um, then I wrote a book about it and it was over. It was almost a decade ago that I got myself into remission and just shared the message with the world on how to get into remission from Hashimoto's so that you don't have to deal with the symptoms because thyroid meds, they can be helpful, but for most people, most people that I see, I can't say for, for every single person in the world, because I haven't seen them, but for most people, they do help a little bit, but then they're still over with the root cause of why they got an autoimmune condition in the first place, in the first place. And there's a lot of broken systems in the body and I focus on repairing them. Right. 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 Well, so often women will just get put on T4 to start. Right. And that's, (laughs) going to be somewhat helpful for some people, but in general, right. Right. One of the huge, I mean, I have, I've always had, um, or dealt with subclinical hypothyroidism. I'm, I'm shocked. I don't, I haven't had Hashimoto's yet, but I'm always, you know, checking my thyroid antibodies consistently. Um, but you know, the, my big issue is conversion from T4 to T3. Right. And I think that that is true for a lot of people. So they're on Synthroid and things like that. And, they're not converting that T4 to T3. So that's not going to help. But also, as you mentioned, it's just so many other aspects to um, having Hashimoto's. And so do you essentially get diagnosed just off of the antibodies showing up or are there other ways to diagnose it too? Generally people um, it's, it's a little bit backwards and I am really trying to spread awareness about that, Mm -hmm. but Generally, most doctors will run a TSH test, mm-hmm. which is a thyroid stimulating hormone. And it essentially will become elevated when the body senses that you need more thyroid hormone on board, right? Mm-hmm. It can happen usually like five to 10 years, sometimes 15, 20 years after mm-hmm. the markers of Hashimoto's and after the inflammation in your thyroid gland is already present. And so I say it's like an excellent test for like, really advanced cases of high blood mm, mm-hmm. if you're trying to um you know like at the point where I was diagnosed I already had damage to my thyroid gland where it couldn't compensate mm-hmm. and it's so much easier to catch Hashimoto's earlier and so you can reduce your thyroid antibodies and reduce that inflammation maybe completely eliminate it and then you don't you know you're not going to be dependent on a medication right right yeah. provide you with external hormones and med- I you know a pharmacist I think medications have their time and place. They're wonderful, yeah. but 
ideally, I would love for people to, if you're having any symptoms, anxiety, trouble conceiving, obsessive compulsive disorder, hair loss, like fatigue, cold intolerance, loss of your eyebrows, talk to your doctor and say, mm -hmm. request thyroid antibody testing. So TPO antibodies and TG mm -hmm. antibodies are the two tests to ask for. And they can be elevated like on average about a decade before you actually have a change in your TSH. So you've got all this time for these amazing lifestyle interventions that you teach about and I teach about to help reduce the inflammation and optimize your hormones before you get into um, a hypothyroid state. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that is a consideration too, for some people is doing a thyroid ultrasound. Mm -hmm. um, there's a condition known as seronegative Hashimoto's where people don't actually have Hashimoto, the two Hashimoto's antibodies, okay. but they might have inflammation in their thyroid gland already. And you could see that on an ultrasound. Interesting. And the interesting thing is like looking at the research, there's like at least eight different Hashimoto's antibodies or eight wow. different types of antibodies against the thyroid gland. So some We're of them are testing them all, <laughs> right. They're yeah. only available for researchers. Right. Yeah. And so there might be other ones that we're not aware mm -hmm. of, but sometimes doing an ultrasound can also be a way to find, um, if you have a lot of these symptoms that, that this could be related, that you might have that inflammation in your thyroid. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know about doing the ultrasound for that. That's really, um, that's really a, a good thing to know. So, um, we don't have a lot of time, but I just wanted to ask what are your favorite lifestyle and dietary approaches in dealing with Hashimoto's? I really love the paleo diet as a, as a good place for most people. Um, some people might need, um, sometimes the autoimmune paleo diet. Some people might only need to go gluten-free and dairy-free. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of the paleo diet. I feel like it, that's, that's a bit in the, in the middle and that's yeah. really reasonable for a lot of people because it's so well known these days that it's almost yeah. like easy to do it or easier. Yeah, to easier. Do it. <laughs> Like, well, I'll say easy for everybody, but easier. Yeah. 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 Tons yeah. of resources on it, but definitely going gluten-free and dairy-free. Um, so sure many more options around those these days than there even was five years ago. So yeah, absolutely. And and then also eating blood sugar balance, having plenty of protein and fat, the, the kind of mistake that I did being a rookie and um, when I first started going gluten-free as I was like, Oh, gluten-free cookies yeah. Cookies. and crackers yeah. and like yeah. all, these, all the you fun know, stuff yeah yeah and then I was eating like a gluten-free junk food diet and yep. some things did get better acid reflux went away because that mm. was like a dairy sensitivity for me and IBS mm. but I ended up with like more anxiety and more thyroid antibodies and hair loss because the blood sugar swings from all of these like gluten-free cookies and and things right a I lot have, of like, times they have even more sugar you know, yep. in order to exactly. balance out. Yeah. Not having the gluten in there. Um, so the blood sugar balance is key. I know I was eating, like, I was like, okay, I used to do whey smoothies for breakfast, which, which are good if you're not sensitive to whey. Right. But I was, and so I was like, what am I going to have for breakfast? And I ended up with like rice cereal and rice milk. And mm. then I'd have like a panic attack within a few hours after breakfast. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what's no, happening? This isn't good. <laughs> um, just making sure that you're finding, you know, really um, gluten-free, dairy-free protein sources because about 88% of people tend to be sensitive to gluten and about 80% mm -hmm. tend to be sensitive to dairy with wow. Hashimoto's. Yeah. Wow. Do you like collagen powder as an option? I love collagen. I will say um, 
I like marine collagen probably the most because I've had some people that are very sensitive to dairy that even though collagen is supposed to be dairy free, mm-hmm. they've still reacted to it. I don't know if, if you've seen that in some people. So the, for, for most yeah. people, it's fine, but I, I've just had too many people saying like, you know, I get the same reaction from, from collagen. And so I'm like, you know, let's, let's, let's think about marine collagen just to be safe. Yeah. I have read a little bit about, um, you know, collagen not having tryptophan in it. And so for some people, it can exacerbate their anxiety from it not being a complete protein, but I haven't necessarily seen that in practice. I've just read about that, you know? So um, I guess my, my other just main thing that has kind of come out recently is, is understanding heavy metals being unfortunately in different powders, you know, and there's actually, I share it on my website. I think it's the organic consumers association did um, test of a bunch of different collagens. And so they have the top three collagen powders that had the lowest heavy metals on there. Um, so that's another important oh. thing, certainly oh, yeah. to think about, right. With, with thyroid and really everything in our body. So important. Thank you yeah. so much for, for putting that together. I'm excited mm-hmm. to share more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So then quickly, what other lifestyle factors should come into play with Hashimoto's? In Hashimoto's, there is, a, a, again, a lot of that self-care and creating that space for healing is going to be super, super important. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a big part of that. Mm-hmm. I oftentimes will recommend various nutrients and supplements too, to help bring some balance in the body. Mm-hmm. One of them is Sarcomyces boulardii. Mm-hmm. It's a beneficial yeast. And when I first started working with people with Hashimoto's, I was like, doing all the lab tests and just really doing deep dives with functional medicine and specific, very specific protocols. And um, sometimes that got to be very expensive and very time consuming for people. So as I started kind of working with more clients and I got uh, more demand, I was like, well, what, like, what are the stats? What can we do that will help like 80% of people? Mm. And so I noticed about 30% of people have um, blastocystis hominis which is a parasitic protozoa that can cause Hashimoto's, IBS, mm. and hives. And then um, some of them might have H. pylori, which can be a trigger for Hashimoto's. Some of them might have fungal overgrowth, candida. Some of them might have mold exposure. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of them have something, um, low levels of something called secretory IgA, which is a beneficial um immunoglobulin. It's, it's, it's in our gut and it helps us protect our gut lining when we don't have enough of it, we're more susceptible to chronic infections. Mm-hmm. We don't overcome infections as well as we could. And we also can have various food sensitivities. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, can I just give people one supplement that like helps with all of these things? And sarcomyces boulardii mm-hmm. helps to raise secretory IgA, helps to clear out mold and candida from the body. It helps to clear out um blastocystis hominis from the body. And it can also help with suppression of H. pylori, as well as other types of dysbiotic bacteria. So I'm like, okay, this is also um, one of the things that I recommend as part of my adrenal transformation protocol. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stress can deplete us of the secretory IgA. And so when we utilize like just very targeted supplements, people will say like, okay, I'm feeling better. My gut function has improved. I don't have this diarrhea. And, um, I'm actually sleeping better with, with a, this probiotic, what, mm. what's going on with that. Mm-hmm. And it's just because it's doing a little bit of cleanup work in their gut. So I really like to focus on like 
you know, I look at like, what are, I, I used to work in outcomes research. So I look at like, okay, what, what is going on with all of my clients and their lab tests? And, and I'll like analyze, like, what are the patterns and try to figure out, like, is there one thing I could give people rather than giving them, you know, seven different things, things, seven different, you know, potential causes. Yeah. I had no idea that Escolarty impacted all of those areas. You know, I knew some of those, uh, that's really cool that it has such a huge overriding impact. Um, I'll have to, I have to use that more often. I, I only usually bring it in with like candida and things like that. So that's, that's really impressive. Yeah, it's got quite a profile. So I love, um, I love finding little gems like that, that are like, oh my gosh, this does so many fabulous things. And, and of course, um, everybody, it's not for everybody. There's some people um, who have like immune suppression that shouldn't take it because it can take up residence in the gut. But for mm-hmm. most people, it works really, really well. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Wow. I mean, I could ask you a million more questions because you have so much good stuff and so much information. Um, But let everybody know where they can contact you, you know, how, where they can get the book, um, where they can get all of your books and and what else is going on. Thank you so much. Um, So my website is thyroidpharmacist.com. And if people go to thyroidpharmacist.com slash ABC, I have a guide and it's like the ABCs of adrenals that goes over how to use various adaptogens uh, and nutrients that get depleted when we're under a lot of stress, which mm-hmm. are like B vitamins, vitamin C and magnesium. Mm-hmm. So people can get that quick, um, quick guide just to get themselves started. Great. I'm also on Instagram under Isabella Wentz PharmD. So please check me out there. I'll, I'll do lives and answer questions there every now and then. And, um, I have, my books are available wherever fine books are sold. So like Barnes and Noble <laughs> and, I'm an Amazon girl. So I get like my Amazon packages. You can um, definitely get all of my books there. The, um, see if I can grab this new book. This is the, yes, show it to us. Adrenal transformation protocol plan going from surviving to thriving in four weeks. This really does work in three to four weeks, which is you're like such a vixen on the cover too. (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you. Um, funny that. thing about this is I didn't have a, uh, my last photo shoot was when I was pregnant. And so I had a big belly and I was like, Oh, I don't have a recent photo. Can I, can I give you guys this one? And my publisher was like, sure. Yes. Like, All right. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, so we, um, so that's available now. Um, April 18th is the publication date. And so it's going to be shipping worldwide if, nice. if people are interested in getting People can that. pre-order, I'm assuming, if they get on Amazon and everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure what day this is coming out, but it'll be probably around then anyway. So, um, and then obviously local bookstores too, if they, you know, if you have a local bookstore that you can go to and grab, yeah, one of your books. Um, you know, I definitely know that I've um, really enjoyed your thyroid books. And so I'm excited to read this adrenal book. And thank you so much for sharing all of this information today about the adrenals. And, you know, one of the things to just wrap up, I just, um, and I know we didn't have a lot of time to talk about it, but the connection between the adrenals and the thyroid is really just so important. And really everything that you said for the adrenals is going to help the thyroid too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. With our thyroid glands, um, whenever we're under stress, our body, our thyroid is going to get the message that we need to slow down metabolism, like stress, our ancient body perceives this as, oh my goodness, there's, there's a famine going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we need to store food instead of burning our food. 
And what happens is that more reverse T3 is produced when we're under a lot of stress. Reverse T3 blocks thyroid hormones instead of activating them. So we, our thyroid function could be perfect, or we could be even taking thyroid medications like levothyroxine. But when our adrenals are dysfunctional and in our body sensing that stress, we're going to be blocking our thyroid receptors mm. and um, not getting the benefits we could do from, from having a normally functioning thyroid gland or from taking thyroid medications. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that little, little piece of information there at the end. So everybody um, we'll have the links in the show notes so that you can go directly and, and grab um, your great offering and, and figure out where you can get your books. And um, thanks again for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. All right, you guys, I will see you next week.